0: John chapter 18, we're going to get there in a little bit. We're talking about the false doctrines of the Catholic Church, and can you remember, we're going to try to keep you up to date, or try to keep you uh, up with remembering uh, which ones we've talked about. So what did we say the first false doctrine of the Catholic Church was? Johan, that they're the only true church, very good. Um, Let's see here, the second thing, what are they wrong about? The second false doctrine. Or any of them, for that matter. Can you remember any of the four, Jackson? Tradition is is on the same level as Scripture. Yep, that was the third thing we talked about. Emma? Uh, The Pope is tonight. We talked about the Pope tonight. Peter. Yep, their belief about Peter. And, of course, that goes right along with the Pope and what we're going to talk about. What's the the last one? It was the one that we talked about in the second week. The priesthood. Very good. Yep, what they believe about the priest. So tonight we're going to talk about the Pope. And uh, nothing makes the Roman Catholic Church so unique as the Pope. And there is no other, no other organization, no other religious organization that has somebody with as much power as the Pope has, not just within that organization, but even outside of that organization. And so let's, let's first of all define the position of Pope. And um, obviously the Pope is the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. He, is, uh, he lives in Rome, Italy, uh, in the Vatican, which is the headquarters for, for Roman Catholicism. Vatican City is actually its own country. Um, I, I didn't look up how many people actually are in there, but it's, it's obviously completely Catholic, and so uh, the, the Pope is the Latin word Papa, which means father, and sometimes he actually is called Papa, Pope, and obviously you can kind of, if you think about the words and the, the, the similarity of it, Pope and Papa sound very similar, but that word means father, and so according to the Roman Catholic Church, Peter was the first bishop or the first Pope, of Rome, and, and of course, it was given to him the authority to open and shut the kingdom of God to men. We're going to overlap some of the stuff that we talked about last week, because um, everything that they believe about the Pope really is based on what they believe about Peter. And we talked a lot about that last week, so I'm going to try not to overlap it too much, but supposedly, Jesus gave to Peter the supreme authority in the church on the earth, and and this authority was then passed on to all the rest of the bishops of Rome, who obviously became popes uh, in their own right. But those claims are based on, supposedly, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 and 19. We spent a considerable amount of time discussing that last week, but we established the fact that Peter was not the first pope. Uh, He was offered no headship by Jesus Christ. He exercised no authority over other churches. He left no successors behind him. And so, uh, they're very wrong about how they even got the Pope to be established in the first place. And so if you're wrong about the foundation, then everything else that you build on top of that is going to come crumbling down. Everything else that you build on top of that it has no merit either. So uh, that's where we are with that. That's why we spent a lot of that time last week talking about Peter. But let me give you some of the titles of, of the Pope. and We call them papal titles, P-A-P-A-L is, is anything related to the Pope. But there's a long list of titles for the Pope, really all of which show that he is probably the world's greatest blasphemer. Uh, I put a list of them up there for you, but here's some of those titles. This is what they call the Pope. His Holiness, Holy Father, Vicar of Christ, Sovereign, Supreme Pontiff, Keeper of the Keys, Head of the Church, Prince of the Apostles, Head of the Bishops, Supreme Pastor, Universal Ruler of the Truth, Infallible Ruler, Father of all Christians, Supreme Teacher of the Universal Church, Father of Princes and Kings, Ruler of the Round Earth, Viceroy of Jesus Christ, Substitute for the Son of God, Successor of the Prince of the Apostles, Sovereign of the State of the Vatican City, Primate of Italy. I mean, it just goes on and there's more that they use. Those are the main ones. But, uh, I mean, think about how blasphemous, blasphemous it is to use some of those titles for a person, for a man. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later, but um, I, I quoted uh, Lorraine Botner quite extensively over, over the course of this thing because of her book, but she says this, Pontiff, meaning bridge builder, comes not from the Bible, but from pagan Rome, where the emperor, as the high priest of the heathen religion, and in that sense professing to be the bridge or connecting link between this life and the next, was called Pontifex Maximus. The title was therefore lifted from paganism and applied to the head of the Roman Catholic Church. As the high priest of the Old Testament was the mediator between God and men, so the Pope also claims to be the mediator between God and men with power over the souls in purgatory. I mean, you think about it, and I want you to think about this as we go through this and talk about some of these things, the power that they are given, giving to one person, to one man, to somebody who is not deity, to somebody who is not God, to somebody who is not Jesus Christ. A lot of the ways that they describe the pope and talk about the pope and, and the power that they ascribe the pope is power that was only given to Jesus Christ, and he is literally taking that power on himself. Um, let me give you a little bit of the history of the papal office, and I, and I know it might sound a little bit boring. I've tried to I've tried to uh, really um, um, shave it down and just kind of give you the bare bones, but. I think there's something that you're going to notice as we go through this history. It's just a brief history, but, but of some of the different popes and when things came in and stuff like that. But the, the concept of a supreme, infallible pope grew up gradually over the centuries as the Roman Catholic Church came into existence and then consolidated its power. And what you're going to find is that the same thing that I've, I've said about all of these other religions or, or many of the other religions, did nobody have the truth before that, did uh, I mean, and, and so then, as you come up, come up with all these new doctrines and everything else, how do you how do you establish the fact that everybody else before that didn't have the truth? Did they have the truth, or did they not? You're coming up with these new ideas. You're coming up with these new things. It's my phone ringing, isn't it? Vibrating the whole podium. Eight six six. I'm sure it's the uh, my car warranty is probably expiring. But um. The whole, the whole point of everything that they did all, all the way throughout the centuries, they then kind of turned around and backdated to everybody else. And, and you'll see what I'm talking about as we go through this. But this, th- this history is traced in the book called Catholicism Against Itself, and it's, it's a long book, but I'm going to quote from this, this, this book and, and keep in mind that these statements that we're going to look at are, are documented from Catholic resources. This is not just something that somebody's saying... You know, I'm going to make the Catholic Church look bad. This all comes from their documents. And to save space on there, I didn't actually give you the document. If you wanted them, I've got on here where they came from and all of that stuff. But let's, let's start into it. The, the, um, go ahead and put the first one up there. Uh, so I'm not going to read the dates. You can look at the dates. Some of them I will point out because they are significant. But to save time and, and uh, effort of, of reading all of the dates and everything else, you can see those. But Pope Damascus was the first one. He was the first one to call himself Pope. And and you see, this is in the 300s, right? So Peter did not call himself a pope. And nobody after Peter, for two or 300 years after Peter, did not call themselves a pope. Pope Damascus was the first one to do that, and he was also the first one to appeal to Matthew chapter 16 for his authority, basically to bolster his claim of his ascendancy over all the churches. And so um, that's almost 400 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ. Uh, that a man started to claim the title of universal pope. 400 years. That's long enough for everybody to forget the first churches, the early churches, Peter, Paul, John, all the other apostles that went about preaching and teaching and doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, you think about three or 400 years. That's a long time. America has only been around for just over 250 years. The entire nation has only been around for that long. And you think about how extensive our history seems to be, right? So add another 150 years to that, and then you finally get to the first guy that calls himself Pope. That's a long time. That's a long time. Second one is Pope Gregory I. He was called Pope Gregory the Great, but he was the first one to use the phrase to speak ex cathedra. We're going to talk about that a little bit more, but ex cathedra means to speak from the throne, and it's the idea that when the Pope makes a a solemn pronouncement from his throne, that pronouncement is infallible. Whatever he says cannot be wrong. That's what ex cathedra, uh, ex cathedra does not mean infallible, but when he speaks ex cathedra, that means he is speaking from his throne, and whatever he says from the throne is infallible. We're going to talk quite a bit more about that in just a little bit. Pope Theodore I was the first pope officially called the sovereign pontiff. Now sovereign refers to supreme power. So when you say sovereign pontiff, he is, he is, he is it's a title that that really should only be applied to God, not to a man, but supreme power? I mean you're basically you are literally putting yourself in the position of God. That's what, that's what sovereign means, but then pontiff means a bridge, and that refers to the pope as being a bridge between God and man. So here's a guy with supreme power who is the bridge between God and man. He has the power, the supreme power, to let people into heaven or to keep people out. When you're using a title like supreme pontiff, man, what, what, uh, what pride, right? What, what uh, assumption to assume that you have that kind of power. The next one is Pope Gregory III. Um, uh, along about this time, the, the kissing of the Pope's feet was instituted. Um, and, and also, um, the way the Pope is actually carried in, a, in this stately sedan, um, is his chair that he's carried in, that also came around at that time, 730s, 740s. Pope Stephen II, he became practically the first Pope king, which, if you know anything about history... The Pope, for a while there, was essentially, he held political as well as religious power. And what he said went not only religiously, but politically. And, and that's a whole other uh, uh, discussion for a different day. Pope Adrian I, he is said to be the, the real founder of the Pope's sovereignty. In other words, the, uh, the idea that the Pope is basically God on earth. Um, pope Nicholas I, he claimed absolute power. Pope John the Fifteenth was the first to canonize a saint. In other words, canonizing a saint means, okay, you have St. Peter, St. Paul, St. whoever, right? Um, in fact, I just heard recently that the youngest, they're actually in the process of trying to canonize the youngest saint. I think this kid was 16 years old and just died recently. I mean, this is, this is relative, uh, relatively new. In order to be canonized as a saint, you have to have... Uh, you have to have at least one miracle, one confirmed miracle to be credited to your name. And I, I cannot remember for the life of me what it was that they said that he did, that it was a miracle. And I think, I think it was that he healed somebody miraculously or something like that. He prayed over this person, person was miraculously healed, and then he died. And this guy, this kid, this kid died. And so they're, they're trying to elevate him to sainthood. Um, but that's, that was, that was um, established under Pope John the 15th in the 900s. Uh, pope John the nineteenth. He seems to have been the first pope to grant uh, to grant an indulgence in return for, for alms bestowed, which means you give me money, then that buys you time out of purgatory, buys you uh, buys you forgiveness of sins. That's that's what an indulgence is. Um, pope Gregory the seventh in the ten hundreds prescribed that the title pope should be confined to the successors of Peter. Now. Um, I think it's interesting, in fact, keep your finger there in John 18, we're going to go to it in a minute, but turn over to Matthew 23, Matthew 23, and, and I, maybe I shouldn't have you turn over there because I don't really have time to develop this whole idea, um, but, but this gives you a, a, a great understanding, I think, of just, just the, um, you know, the fact that the, the Pope is called Holy Father, that his term Pope comes from Papa, which means Father. Um, religious leaders who allow themselves to be called father and those who refer to somebody by that name are in rebellion, direct rebellion to Jesus Christ's command. It says this in Matthew chapter 23 in verse number nine, and call no man your father upon the earth for one is your father which is in heaven. Now, again, that's not saying that you can't say, this is my father, you know, talking about your dad, right? What it's talking about is, is... using that term in the position of God. And that's exactly what the Catholic Church is doing when they're calling the Pope Holy Father and, and Papa and, and all of that other stuff. So uh, direct, direct rebellion, direct opposition to the command of Jesus Christ. Pope Innocent III in the 1100s. From the time of, of Innocent III, the, Pope calls, the popes called themselves the vicar of Christ. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Pope Boniface VII. One of the proclamations of, of, of Boniface Seventh says this. I didn't put it up there because it's a little bit longer. Listen to the vicar of Christ who is placed over kings and kingdoms. He is the keeper of the keys, the judge of the living and the dead, and sits on the throne of justice with power to extirpate all iniquity. He is the head of the church, which is one and stainless, and not a many-headed monster, and has full divine authority to pluck out and tear down to build up and plant. Let not the king imagine that he has no superior, is not subject to the highest authority in the church. If you heard that, who do you think they'd be talking about? God or Jesus Christ, right? He's talking about himself. I have the power. I have the, this, this was his own proclamation. He's the one that said that. Nobody has more power than me. In fact, I have power to forgive sins, to, to cleanse, to let people into heaven, to keep them out of heaven. I can, I can do that. I have that supreme power. Wow, Pope Benedict pope twelfth. Benedict this is in the 1300s now, it was during the reign of, of Benedict twelfth of the Catholic Church that the earliest representation of the tiara, which is what the Pope wears um, and what he receives at his coronation. That's three crowns that he gets. Before that, it actually was two, two crowns, but um, the, it says this, the first circlet symbolizes the Pope's universal rule in the church, the second, his supremacy, and the third, his temporal influence, father of princes and kings, ruler of the world, vicar of our Savior Jesus Christ. That's why he wears three crowns. And if you can go, I should should have put a picture up there because I looked some of them up and you can see the crown that he wears, the crown that he receives and all of that kind of stuff, But, but so blasphemous to talk about a pope in the same position as God the Father or at the very least Jesus Christ. Pope Pius IV, this is getting to the 1500s now. Catholics were forbidden to read the Bible, even the Catholic Bible. Now, what, what do you know about the 1595 to 1565? What had taken place by that time? The what? The, the printing press had already been out there. Yeah, so, so Bibles were much more uh, accessible. The, the Protestant Reformation, right? The Protestant Reformation had already happened. People were starting to say, wait a second, maybe there's more to the Bible that what we've been led to believe, what we've been told, we want to read it for themselves, for for ourselves. And so, um, Pope Pius IV said that nobody was allowed to read the Bible, even even Catholic versions of the Bible. This is a proclamation that he made, a creed in 1564. Uh, the 11th and 12th articles say this: I acknowledge the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Roman Church to be the mother and mistress of all the churches. I vow and swear a true obedience to the Roman Pontiff, the successor of Peter the Prince of the Apostles, and the Vicar of Jesus Christ. Wow. Here's the last one that we'll talk about in our, in our list as far as the history goes, but Pope Pius IX. This is in 1846. This is when he was the Pope, 1846 to 1878. He declared himself to be infallible in 1870. Now, they declared, uh, uh, you know, and, and we looked at that, that they were supreme ruler and all of this kind of stuff, but no pope had actually declared himself to be infallible until 1870. It was also during the papacy of Pope Pius IX that the First Vatican Council was held, during which it was proclaimed that the Pope is infallible when he is speaking ex cathedra, or from, his, from the throne, on the matter of faith and morals. Um, and, and also, basically, that same Vatican Council uh, established the fact that the Pope has the jurisdiction over every single believer on earth. If you claim to be a Christian, the Pope has authority over you. That's what that was. And so it's very easy to see that the Catholic doctrine of of papal supremacy came in gradually um, through the centuries. So let's talk about then the authority and the supremacy of the Pope. The Roman Catholic Church claims that the Pope has absolute supremacy, complete supremacy over everything. This is according to the National Catholic Almanac. On his coronation, these are the words that are spoken to the Pope. Receive the tiara adorned with three crowns and know that thou art the father of princes and kings, ruler of the world, the vicar of our Savior Jesus Christ. The Pope is said to have the authority to establish any doctrine, which again, isn't this, I mean, I don't know, I don't really understand why the Catholic Church is not considered to be a cult. Um, I think there are factions out there who do consider it that, but they're, you know, if you talk about them in a book of cults, you don't necessarily find the Catholic Church. But this is no different than what any leader of a cult would do. I get to make the rules. I'm infallible. Nobody supersedes my authority. If I decide that I want to change a doctrine, I can change a doctrine and claim that it came from Jesus Christ or claim that it came from God, and nobody can say anything against it. How is that any different than a cult? It's not. It's not. When he speaks officially ex cathedra from his throne, his declarations are considered to be infallible. The New York Catechism says this, the Pope takes the place of Jesus Christ on earth. Think about that statement. Essentially, he's saying he is Jesus Christ on this earth, right? By divine right, the Pope has supreme and full power in faith and morals over each and every pastor and his flock. He is the true vicar of Christ, the head of the entire church, the father and teacher of all Christians. He is the infallible ruler, the founder of dogmas, the author of and the judge of counsels, the universal ruler of truth, the arbiter of the world, the supreme judge of heaven and earth, the judge of all being judged by no one, God himself on earth. God himself on earth. That that comes from the New York Catechism. That is not from somebody who is claiming that that's what the Pope says he is. That comes directly from them. Papal supremacy was, was reaffirmed by the Second Vatican Council it was, that was in the 1960s. So 1870, the Pope is infallible. 1960s, almost 100 years later, they have the Second Vatican Council, and they reaffirm exactly what that is. There was 2,400 bishops in attendance at that Second Vatican Council, and all of them affirmed the same thing, that the Pope is infallible. The official pronouncements that were issued by this council Changed the face of Roman Catholicism in, in a lot of superficial ways, but the the foundational dogmas that regarding the papacy, the mass, um, other sacraments the, the the view of Mary, the priesthood, all of that stuff remained unchanged. The Catholic Church tried to reimagine itself a little bit in the 1960s, and they thought that that would do it, but they changed so so little that really there's no way that you can say that, that anything was changed at all so they tried to say that they were rejecting some of the heresies of Rome and, and whatever else, but um, that was actually not true. In fact, here are some of the statements from the Vatican II that uh, really explain who they really are and that honestly nothing has changed. This, this comes from the Vatican, Vatican Council II. The Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ, namely, and as pastor of the entire church, has full supreme and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. Here's another one. This loyal submission of the will and intellect must be given in a special way to the authentic teaching authority of the Roman pontiff. Even when he does not speak ex cathedra in such wise, indeed, that his supreme teaching authority be acknowledged with respect and sincere assent be given to the decisions made by him conformably with his manifest mind and intention. Here's another statement coming from the same council. The Roman pontiff, head of the College of Bishops, enjoys this infallibility in virtue of his office when, as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful, he proclaims in an absolute decision a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals. For that very reason, his definitions are rightly said to be irreformable by their very nature and not by reason of the assent of the church. As a consequence, they are in no way in need of the approval of others and do not admit of appeal to any other tribunal. For in such a case, the Roman pontiff does not utter a pronouncement as a private person, but rather does he expound and defend the teaching of the Catholic faith as the supreme teacher of the universal church in whom the church's uh, charism of infallibility is present in a singular way. In other words, when the Pope speaks, he's not just speaking as a man. He's speaking as God. He's speaking as uh, as the vicar of Christ on this earth. So what he says is infallible. Whether he's speaking from his throne or not, when he says it, He's not just speaking as a regular human being like the rest of us, he's speaking as God, and everything that he says is infallible. I mean, you think about the blasphemy of a statement like that, but these, these Vatican II proclamations that the Pope of Rome retains his, his supreme position, it, it, it's still to this day, to this day they do that. Now here's an interesting thing, and I don't, I don't want to take a lot of time to talk about this, but... Um, really, that Vatican II Council gave the Pope more power than he had originally, even from the 1870s and, and going before. But what you're seeing, I think, is a, is a big shift in the Catholic Church today because the Catholic Church has always been against homosexuality. The Catholic Church has always been against abortion. And, and you know, regardless of, of who the politician was or what they believed, they were always against those types of moral things. And what you're finding now is that the Pope today, I forget what his name is, Francis, is really waffling on a lot of those things, and it's really splitting the Catholic Church because there are, there's a huge faction of them who say, well, he's the Pope, and what he says goes. It's infallible, and there's another section that says, that's not Catholic doctrine. That's not what Catholics believe. The Pope can't be right on this. And you're, you're, you're starting to see a, a shift in those things because... There's a lot of people who who are still hardcore Catholics who say, the Pope's wrong on that, which is something that you never would have heard somebody say. But now you're starting to see it because the Pope is moving away from what all the Popes have traditionally preached and taught and and held firm on regardless of what the political uh, field was in the day. So it's very interesting, those kind of things uh, that are happening. But according to them now, you know, it would be hard to imagine a more exalted position than what they've described as as the position of the Pope, right? How do you get any higher than that? How do you get more exalted than than what we've just described about the Pope? So no other man on earth makes claims like the Pope makes. Um, But the interesting thing is that that papal infallibility didn't exist for 18 centuries, right? When was it, when did we say it was that the first Pope declared his infallibility? 1870, right? 1870, right? 1870, and so for 18 centuries, it wasn't until 1870s that the first one declared that he was infallible. I, I covered for you. You say 1970? Oh, oh, is it still up there? Oh, there you go. Okay, I thought you said 1970, but um, now they 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 would claim that they're only uh, infallible when they're speaking ex cathedral or from the you know from their official throne, but. The Pope never tells us when they're speaking ex cathedra. He never says, oh, I'm speaking officially here. He just speaks. And that gives them room to, to wiggle out of anything that, that, that might end up coming back as being something that turned out to be not infallible. Well, let me give you some problems with papal infallibility. We're going to look at some problems with the, with, the, uh, with the Pope, and then we're done. There's not, not too much left. So here's some problems with papal infallibility. Number one, it's never been used to clear up doctrinal issues. It's never been used to clear up doctrinal questions um, for example, it's never been used to issue a systematic theology or commentary about a, a difficult part of the Bible. It's always, it always has something to do with the Pope's infallibility or something like that, right? Um, if you actually had that power, wouldn't you use that power to help the church understand difficult parts of the Bible, right? There are passages that, that are a little bit more difficult to understand than others, but they've never never use that infallibility position to speak to clear up a doctrinal issue. Number two, papal infallibility, uh, when it was declared in 1870, was actually backdated to all the rest of the popes. Peter, being the first one, 1800 years before. So, the pope declares himself to be infallible in 1870. And he said, "Every every pope before me was also infallible. But, if that's the case then how was Peter grievously wrong in Galatians chapter 2 to the point where Paul had to confront him to his face, right? Well, if Peter's the leader of the church, which we talked a lot about that, but if Peter's the leader of the church and he's infallible, then why did Paul have to get on him for being wrong, right? And also the fact that Peter explicitly said that he was just like any other man. He never claimed to be infallible. Number three, the most important epistle to the church at Rome Romans, does not even mention Peter, let alone state that he is the earthly head of the church and that his successors in perpetuity and that they're infallible. Peter never said that. Romans never says that. In fact, Peter is never even mentioned in the book of Romans. If Peter was the leader of the church of Rome for all of those years, you'd think that the book of Romans would at least mention his name and mention the fact that he was there. And that he was the head of all the church during that time, never even mentions him. Paul is mentioned a lot, right? And, and others are mentioned a lot, but no Peter. A couple of these I'm going to cover pretty quickly because we, we talked about them already or they kind of speak for themselves. This one, number four, is, is one of those. If the Pope is infallible, why didn't the Pope recognize it until 1870? If the Pope is so infallible, why did it take him so long to realize that that was the case? And why did nobody else? If God was giving him that information, why did Peter not say it? Why did none of the successors of Peter say it until 1870 that the Pope was infallible? Number five, here's an interesting question as well. And this question kind of explains everything about what I want to say about it. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But if the Pope has always been infallible, then how come there was more than one Pope at a time in the 14th century? And how come they excommunicated each other? And how come a third pope then excommunicated both of them? Which one of them was infallible, right? You had three popes at the same time. Two of them excommunicated each other, which means you can't even get into heaven, right? Definitely not infallible if you got kicked out of heaven, right? Two of them excommunicated each other. Another one took over and excommunicated both of them. So which one was infallible? Which one was right? Which one was the true pope? They all claimed to be, right? At the very least, it would give you a little bit of pause to say maybe they're not infallible like they think they are, right? Here's, a, here's another interesting question, and this is where I want to look at John chapter 18. But how can the leaders of the American Catholic Church claim to be loyal Americans? Why do I ask that question? Well, because the Pope has declared himself to be infallible, but he's, he's also declared that the separation of church and state is wrong. That is one of the fundamental tenets of America, right? Right? separation of church and state. The Pope says that the separation of church and state is wrong. He says that the church should run the government. And for years and years and years, that's exactly what happened. Right? In Rome, in Europe, the Pope ran not only the religious side of things, he ran the political side of things. But Jesus said that the church did not exist to run the church. uh, Sorry, to run the world. John chapter 18 and verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Our job is not to rule the world. Our job is to deal with the church, right? And to try to win them to Jesus Christ, but not to rule the world. So there's definitely a separation of church and state. And honestly, if you see what Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. If you want a statement of separation of church and state, that's it right there, right? Give Caesar his stuff, give God his stuff. He never said that the church should be in charge. And how many times did the disciples ask Jesus Christ, when are you going to set up your kingdom on this earth? And he said, that's not what I'm here for. It's not what we're doing, right? If it was such an integral part of why the church exists, then don't you think Jesus Christ would have established the church as the leader of the government before he left? or at least said that that's what his purpose was, right? But he never mentioned that. And so how can, how can, how can leaders of the American Catholic Church claim to be loyal, loyal Americans if they, if they follow the Pope, who is infallible, who says that there should be no separation of church and state? Puts them in a precarious situation at the very least. So uh, number seven, how come the Bible is completely silent about papal infallibility? If the Pope is absolutely correct, if Peter, as the first Pope, was infallible, why didn't the Bible say that? Why does the Bible never mention anything about that? Number eight, how come 19 centuries of supposedly infallible Popes have contradicted themselves? If they're infallible, they should never be wrong, right? Well, Zosimus, in 417 and 418, declared Pelagius to be orthodox, but later he reversed himself under the influence of? Uh, of Augustine well he was wrong then and he admitted that he was wrong right if he's infallible then you're not wrong even if you admit it right Vigilinus 538 to 555 he was declared by a church council to be under the threat of excommunication because of his doctrinal errors he later confessed to being a tool of Satan it was kind of under duress that he that he confessed that but if he is being considered for excommunication because of his doctrinal errors, then how can you say that he's infallible, right? Well, Pope didn't say he was infallible until 1870. You're right, but he also declared that every Pope before him was also infallible. Uh, Honorius in 625 to 638, he was deemed by the Roman Catholic Church to be a heretic. And that was a position that they actually held for over 800 years. Honorius is is a heretic. Until Martin Luther made such a fuss about it that they actually changed their mind again and said that he wasn't. Which one was it? I thought he was infallible, right? Is he a heretic or is he not? Eugene IV, 1431 to 1447, he condemned Joan of Arc and burned her alive as a witch. This was in the 1400s, right? Benedict XV in 1919 declared her to be a saint. So is she a witch that deserved to be burned at the stake or is she a saint? Because two popes are saying two opposite things. Which one is infallible? right? Clement Fourteenth in 1773, he outlawed the Jesuits. In 1814, Pius Seventh restored them. That's just a few examples of popes who are supposed to be infallible that have contradicted themselves, directly opposite in contradiction. Number nine here is a, is a, is a, is a question that I think we can ask um, with plenty of evidence. If you were God, would you use such a collection of wicked men to proclaim supposedly infallible truth? I know we're not God, and that's just a hypothetical question, but they're, they're claiming to be God's man on earth. They're claiming to be God on earth, claiming to be the vicar of Jesus Christ. Let me give you just a couple simple examples. John the 11th in, in the 900s was the illegitimate son of Sergius III, who was also a pope. Illegitimate son? Hardly infallible, hardly something that God would say. Wow, that's my man on earth, right? John the twenty-third was deposed by the Council of Constance for simony. Simony is the buying and selling of ecclesiastical privileges. For example, uh, buying a pardon or buying a uh, you know a benefice or something like that. But he was also deposed for immorality. God's man on earth, right? Alexander VI in the 1400s had six illegitimate children. Two of them were born after he became the Pope, which, okay, they're not supposed to be married anyway. Uh, He wasn't married. He had six kids. How do you have six kids and not be married, right? Two of those kids were born after he was the Pope. His third son actually became a, a cardinal. History tells us that he had an immoral relationship with his own daughter, Lucretia, and that she had a relationship with her brother as well. Wow, great, great representations of God himself on this earth, right? If you were God, wouldn't you want to use somebody like that to be your representation on this earth? Wouldn't you declare them to be infallible, right? Popes have been guilty of murder, perjury, sacrilege, adultery, incest, simony. We don't even mention all the current accusations against the, the priests and pope and everybody else today, Right? I mean, think about how many people have left the Catholic Church just in in the last 20 years because of all the accusations against all of these people within the Catholic Church, right, for all of the different things that they've done. A total of 29 popes, actually, were historically so bad that the Roman Catholic Church actually calls them anti-popes. And I don't have time to to go look into it, I mean, to to go into it, but you can go look it up, look up anti-pope and see what the the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has to say about anti-popes. Here's somebody that's supposedly God's man on earth, God himself on earth, somebody who is infallible, and then 29 of them have actually been declared anti-popes by the church. I mean, it'd be one thing if there was one who snuck in there and pretended to be God's man on earth and ended up not, right? 29? That's a lot. That's a lot. Hard to ignore. Let's look very quickly then at some errors of the papacy and we'll be done. Number one, Peter was not a pope. We have to ask that obvious question. Uh, where in the New Testament do we see Peter claiming to be a pontiff? Where in the New Testament do we see him accepting um, the title of, of Holy Father or Infallible Leader or any of those other titles that the Pope used? It was Paul and John, not Peter, who wrote most of the New Testament, right? Peter, Peter wrote two epistles. And, 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 and in the two epistles that he wrote, he wrote 166 verses. John, who wrote five epistles, wrote 1,415 of the verses that we find in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 epistles with 2,033 verses. So you take Paul, 2,033, Peter, 166. If there was a pope in the early church, it was Paul, not Peter, Right? Obviously, we're, we're being hypothetical here because neither one of them were the Pope. But Jesus Christ alone is the head and the rock of the church. Peter was not a Pope. His, talking about Peter's supremacy goes in direct, contrary, direct contrast to the evidence of the Scripture. Here's number two. Turn over to Matthew chapter 23. The title that's used for the Pope are blasphemous. That's an error of the papacy. Only God should be called by those names and titles. The Lord Jesus Christ condemned that type of thing in the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 8. But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ. And all ye are brethren. Call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. You look in Acts chapter 10, Peter, who is supposedly a a, a pope, refused to accept that worship, right? Right? He said, get off your knees. I'm a man just like you are. But the popes um, accept, in fact, they even demand the title of deity, and they accept the worship of those who approach them. Number three, the vicar of Christ is the Holy Spirit, not the pope. Um, Nowhere in the New Testament do we find this blasphemous, blasphemous Catholic idea that a mere man would become the vicar or the representative of Jesus Christ during his absence in heaven. If you go through John chapter 14 and John chapter 15, you see that the Holy Spirit is coming to be Christ's representative on this earth, right? But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. It doesn't say anything about a pope. doesn't say anything about a man. It's the Holy Spirit. And for the, for the pope to claim the position of the Holy Spirit is blasphemous at the very least. Number four, the Roman Catholic Church has no biblical authority for elevating some church leaders above others as they do with their popes, their bishops, their priests, and their cardinals. Um, The term bishop, elder, pastor, it refers to the same office in the New Testament church. And these these terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament and, and they refer to different aspects of the same person's ministry right? Um, the, the Catholic church tries to use that to say that all of these are different men. They're not. They're, they're all terms for the same person. Pastor emphasizes the church leader's role as a shepherd of God's people. Elder emphasizes the spiritual maturity. Bishop emphasizes his role as an overseer and a, and a ruler of the assembly. It's all talking about the same person though. Bishop, elder, pastor. You don't have pastors and elders and bishops. Those, those are all three talking about the same title. Um, In fact, in some passages, all three terms are used to describe the church leader. And I don't have time to go into these, but Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, verse 28, the leaders of the church at Ephesus are called elders, overseers, and feeders of the church, which refers to the role of the pastor. All the same person, three terms. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, the term elder and bishop are used interchangeably. First Peter 5, the pastor is again pictured in in all three aspects. Uh, He's called the elder in one verse, uh, overseer in another verse. Overseers from the same Greek word as, as the word that we get bishop from. So we don't find any ecclesiastical hierarchy in the New Testament. You don't have one supreme leader and then other leaders who are under him who are over big, you know. This whole idea of, of a hierarchy in churches is found nowhere in the Bible. Uh, all of these church leaders, if you want to call them that, worked together, worked side by side in conjunction with each other, not under somebody else's authority or leadership or anything like that. So the, the Roman Catholic Church has no biblical authority for elevating any church leader, let alone a pope, to the position that he's in. We could say a lot more things about it, but let me, let me close with a little reading, if you will, that I came across that shows really the vast difference between Christ and the pope. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting and pretty, pretty, mind, uh, pretty eye-opening to see the difference between who Jesus Christ really is and who, what the Pope claims to be. Christ wore a crown of thorns. The Pope wears a triple crown filled with jewels. Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. The Pope claims the spiritual and temporal sovereignty of the world. Christ washed his disciples' feet, thus manifesting a spirit of humility worthy of emulation by his followers. The Pope presents his foot to be kissed, and requires genuflections and kneeling. Christ was poor and lowly. The Pope's material wealth is immense. Christ carried on his shoulders the cross. Pope is carried on the shoulders of his servants in liveries of splendor. Christ preached peace and goodwill among men. The, pope have, the Popes have instigated more wars than all other aggressors combined. Christ promulgated the laws of his kingdom and urged his followers to do the same. The Pope tramples them underfoot and substitutes his own in their stead. Christ had no place to lay his head. The Pope lives in a magnificent palace surrounded by wealth and pomp. Christ gave his gospel freely to all. The Pope sells his masses and other favors. Christ said, call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. The Pope commands all to call him Holy Father. Christ lived a chaste and pure life. Many of the popes have lived immoral and degraded lives. Christ taught nothing but true doctrine. The pope teaches false doctrine. Christ sent the Holy Spirit to be his vicar on earth. The pope claims to be the vicar of Christ on earth. Christ is the head of the church. The pope claims to be the head of the church. Christ claimed infallibility for himself in the word of God alone. The pope claims infallibility for himself in matters of faith and morals. (coughs) Christ taught that sin should be confessed to God. The pope teaches that sin should be confessed to him and his priests. Christ taught that his followers taught his followers to pray to God through him the pope teaches his followers to pray to the virgin mary Christ gave his churches two ordinances which signify the gospel of his death burial and resurrection <coughs> excuse me the pope teaches seven sacraments which are supposed to confer grace actually and effectively Christ taught that he alone is the savior the pope teaches that the church is the savior Christ taught church and state should be separated the pope insists that they should be united Christ taught that there was but one mediator between God and men, himself. The Pope teaches that there are many mediators between man and God. Christ taught that salvation was by grace, meaning a free gift. The Pope teaches salvation is by grace plus works and sacraments of the Roman church. I'm sure there's a lot more contrast that we could, that we could talk about, but I came across it and I said, man, what a, what a great distinction between what the representative of Jesus Christ on this earth actually should be. Think about who Christ was on this earth and what the popes claim to be as Jesus Christ on this earth. And there is such a contrast between the two. There's no way that you can say the pope is standing in Christ's stead on this earth. A lot of other things that we could probably say about it because the pope teaches so many other things, but we're going to get into next week their belief about Mary and what they have to say and, and really what's called Mariolatry because it's the idolatry of Mary. And where they put her on this scale of, of uh, basically being on the same level as Jesus Christ, um, and so as we talk about more of these errors, we're also going to talk some more about the Pope because he is the one that's promulgating these errors and and teaching them and proclaiming them as true doctrine and everything else. But we'll get into that when we get together again next week. Let's pray. We'll be done. Father, we love you. Give me. Thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to study the Word of God for ourselves. I pray that you'd help us to do that. I pray that you'd help us to understand uh, the truths and the, and the doctrines of the Word of God so that we can stand on what we believe. I pray that you'd help us to take a stand against these false doctrines, these false religions, and that we'd be able to lead some to Jesus Christ because we understand the difference, we understand where they're coming from, and we know the truth. I pray that you'd help us to be witnesses for you that you need us to be. I pray that you give us a good rest of the week and bring us back safely together here on Sunday. Thank you for all you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.